Welcome to Beyond Busy, the show where we ask the bigger questions about work. My name is Graham Alcott. I'm your host for the show. And on this episode, I'm talking to Tom Bergen. Tom is the author of a book called Free Lunch Thinking. And we talk, amongst other things, about around cognitive biases, what you can do about them, why economics is broken, and what happens when you, when you get screamed at by Donald Trump. So lots to come on this episode. Also, I really enjoyed Tom's uh, book, The Inside Story of BP, which you talk about as well, which is all about some of the major decisions that BP made um, around the oil spill a few years ago. And just loads coming up. Tom was a, a journalist for Reuters and um, started his career as an energy broker. So loads of loads of interesting stuff on this episode. It was a really fascinating conversation. So I think you're going to really enjoy it. Just quickly before we get into the episode, just want to say thanks to everybody who has been messaging after Beyond Busy 100, our little series of three episodes. We were originally planning to just do one episode, which was like going to be a compilation. Then we just had so many things I wanted to fit in that we ended up doing it all in three parts. So there's a productivity one, there's a work-life balance one, and then there's one about happiness and success, which are kind of like three of our our sort of core themes really on this podcast. If you haven't checked them out, then there is everybody from, you know, Cal Newport to Josie Long to Gerald Ratner, uh, everything in between, just a really interesting array of guests. And um, it was a really interesting process, maybe really thankful for this podcast and for everybody who listens and um you know makes it possible for me to sit in my shed and uh, just ramble on i suppose i'd do it if no one listened to be honest but it's uh it's just really lovely to to get that feedback and also just to sort of spend a bit of time reflecting and looking back which i know i don't do enough so let's talk about tom bergen so he was um, a journalist at reuters and before the the market crash in 2006 he worked as an energy broker and a fund manager. And then when he moved to London, he started working in journalism, as you're going to hear, uh, wrote this amazing book, The Inside Story of BP. And then this newer book, Free Lunch Thinking, where he basically just lifts the lid on economics and talks about a lot of the the kind of theories within economics that are known to be true or kind of, you know, everyone thinks they're true and just maybe they're not. Um, we talk about Donald Trump and his encounter with the now former US president. Feels very nice to say that. <laughs> not to get too political, but oh, it's a relief to not have to listen to Trump, isn't it? Um, so really interesting conversation. And then we start and um, we, we finish at, at the end um, talking about productivity uh, and uh, his thoughts on productivity as well. So absolutely loads to pack in. So let's get straight into this Beyond Busy 101 with Tom Bergen. We're recording, um, and I'm loving your your micros- microphone fix before we start as well, which do you want to Absolutely. just explain <laughs> for the listeners who are not non-viewing this uh, what well, we've done. Yeah. Yes, we had we had a uh, we had a, a bit of a mishap with the microphone, which I thought I'd sort of sorted out very well, but uh, as it turned out, technology has ever failed. So, uh, in the end of the day. Uh, sort of some ham-fisted uh, machinations had to be engaged in, but it actually worked out okay. So, and and I, as I was saying earlier, I did a hostile environments course once that, uh, at which I was told that there really were very few jams that uh, that gaffer tape couldn't get you out of. So a piece of cloth <laughs> and, and some gaffer tape was able to to rescue the microphone and make it uh, much more usable and reduce that sort of feedback that we were getting. So we're so, kind of reducing uh, the, what the um, audio files called pop, right? Where you 
you pronounce words that begin with P and B and it kind of has that air effect on the microphone. So we've covered that with some cloth. Um, tell me about the hostile environment course. They've got to start with that. Uh, just, drop, <laughs> just drop that in there. Um, it doesn't sound like something that many of us get to do is go on a hostile environment course. So um, I presume you're talking about surviving in hostile environments, not um, you know how to create a hostile environment for <laughs> yes, <exactly>. immigration or something. <laughs> yeah, so it was it was a work course, so definitely they weren't they weren't teaching us to be more more abusive to one another. Um, no, it, it was it's something that journalists do, you know, reasonably frequently. Certainly, where I work at Reuters, um, if you're in, involved in in sort of enterprise reporting, investigative work, or you you know working you know overseas, uh, that the it's important that you know how to take some sort of basic precautions around managing managing yourself. Now, it's it, it's not hostile environments like a sort of Rambo course. It's not teaching you how to survive on grubs and and roots for, for six months. It's more about uh, that if you're in, you know, I, I've been reporting in Iraq and it's just about sort of trying to read situations and basic precautions that, that you need to take. I have to say I was amused the first time I did it that I realized that, that a lot of the things that you're supposed to do if you are going into a hostile environment were things that I was already doing on my holidays to Spain. Like, <laughs> I'm quite a cautious person, but I, I, I like to be prepared and organized. Yeah. So I would always have, you know, what happens if I lose my passport? You know, do I have a passport application form? So I would bring that and, you know, take uh. photocopies of my passport. So I, I already did a lot of that stuff. But so a lot of the, the things that you, you need to do are, are quite basic like that. And, and also obviously first aid. I always have a backup of my passport just saved as pictures on my Dropbox. So I know I could get to an image of my passport if I needed to, but I don't carry a passport form around with me. Is that, is that, am I supposed to do that? Well, it depends on the situation. Now, if you're going to Spain, not so much. And I don't do that anymore when I go to Spain. Now we've got better internet access. But I mean, certainly if you're going to a country where, you know, internet cafes aren't everywhere or things like, um, you know, uh, printers, not access to printers. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, one of the things is about the contacts that if you, on your telephone, we do have so much on our devices. And, you know, generally, we're never too far away from a charging point. If you're in a restaurant and it's dead, you can always hand it to a waiter and they'll always find it at a hotel. But, uh, you know, if you're in, in a country where there, there aren't great services like that, um, or if you're just simply out of contact, it's one thing that if you're in, in an area where you're, where there's not great mobile signal, your battery's going to die very quickly because it's trying to get a signal. So, you know, you could very easily find yourself in a situation where you don't have contact or you don't know where you should be because the address that you think you're yeah. going to is no longer visible on your phone. So, um, yeah, so, 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 so sometimes, you know, with the old style uh, hard copies of things, it's still pretty important uh, to have with you. I'm just wondering if there were any other travel hacks that you learned from that. I was just thinking as you were talking there that, I was in um, Washington, D.C. a couple of years ago and I'd been sort of out all day and then I went to a baseball game in the evening, which is which is how I roll. Um, and my phone died. And of course, I had my uh, my backup battery there, but I'd just forgotten the little lead that goes from there. <laughs> and so I, I realized that I was totally reliant on my phone in this moment. And um, luckily, I found a nice person in the stadium who managed to hook me up with a charger. But like literally, I was... I wouldn't have had the address of the uber i wouldn't have known where to go like i was actually screwed if i didn't get this phone back on sort of thing um so did you pick up any other travel hacks through um those extremities 
Well, but that example that you just gave is a, is a really good example of having lists. Because again, you know, I've been in situations whereby you've got a lot of kit, maybe you've got a tripod, a camera, etc. And you realize you've, you, you've slept, you know, I don't know, maybe a kilometer away from the car, and you've left some really basic thing in the car, mm. uh, maybe some connection. And without that, all this other equipment is useless, as you found at the baseball game. Yeah. Um, so w- just organization. Organization is really key and taking the time to do that. And it, because so many of the things are quite simple, like bringing your lead to the, um, for, for your backup battery, but one forgets about them because you're sort of you know, yeah. trying to think about other things. So sometimes it is the, the small things. So organization can you know help you not forget the small things to to so checklists and things like that are, are really critical which i have to say was kind of music to my ears because I'm yeah so i have person. some really good <laughs> checklists for trips um that are my packing checklists but then i don't i don't follow a checklist on the day when i leave the house without the lead right so i suppose but i suppose if you're going somewhere hostile then having done the prep and the planning beforehand is probably even more important as well. I mean, it certainly is. It could be sort of safety issues on that. But, you know, if, if, if you've flown across the Atlantic to go to an interview and you find you've gone a few blocks and it's going to take you, you know, maybe half an hour to get back, you know, there and back and you've forgotten a key piece of equipment, then that's equally, <laughs> equally a problem. So, yeah, I think that with respect to any kind of reporting, but I think any time you're in a position where you're, you've got a limited opportunity to achieve something, if you haven't gone through a sort of checklist of things, it can be quite easy to, to kind of miss the, the piece in the jigsaw that makes it all perhaps you know useless at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, so we're going to talk about your work. And um, so you're a, a journalist, multi-award winning journalist, and um, previously had written a book about BP. Um, and so we're going to talk about your new book, Free Lunch Thinking, um, How Economics Ruins the Economy, which... Um, I just found really fascinating, really resonated with me on on a couple of different levels. Um, but just to sort of go back before, uh, just sort of tell the backstory before. So before you became a journalist and worked for Reuters and went to Iraq and spent a lot of time investigating things like corporate tax avoidance and and you know worker safety and stuff like that. So before you did all that, you were an oil broker and worked in the oil industry, and then you became the person exposing BP. So was it a kind of poacher turn gamekeeper kind of dynamic? Like what, what was the journey through those different um, parts of your career? It's, it's funny. There were certain coincidences. It, it doesn't feel exactly, I suppose, as you put it, but I, maybe it was. But I, basically I left school and I you know, went to college. I, I studied business at college. I studied economics. Um, I also did philosophy, I guess. Maybe that was a, a cue to, to, to other interests. But I, I had been interested in journalism um, when I was at school, uh, when I was a teenager. Uh, I, I'd grown up in Ireland, uh, in, in the countryside. I, I, I never thought that I would be a journalist. It didn't seem like a realistic proposition for a career. Uh, and so I went to college and I studied as I did. I, I, I left and I got into finance. So the the energy industry was very much a I'd quote finance. So I was a broker. And basically, I was helping uh, oil companies and uh, traders to buy and sell cargoes of oil and also derivatives based on them. Most of it, to be honest, is, is derivatives, about 80%, 90% of the market. And, um, you know, I previously also worked in, in fund management. And I guess I was sort of heading towards my late 20s. And I was getting conscious that 
you know, well, I wasn't enjoying what I was doing that much. Uh, I was also aware that if I wanted to do something about that, it was going to get much more, much more difficult as time went on. So as I, as a, I was approaching my you know, 30s, I decided to make a change. And as I said, I'd always been interested in journalism. I decided, well, why not just give it a go? And at the time I was working in Dublin, I decided to move to London and, and become a journalist. And I started, like a lot of people who get into journalism later in life, they'll often write about things that they have experience of. So it could be if you're a lawyer, you might get involved in legal reporting. And so I, I had a knowledge of derivatives and uh, sort of finance generally. So that was sort of where that, that, that took me. And I, I started off, I was working for a small publication in, in the derivatives field. And then I got a job working for Reuters. And that was, I didn't realize it at the time. I have to say it was quite prescient and sort of they're certainly in the categories of, of not the things that you, you feel the best about in life. But I, I was got a job writing about credit derivatives, which at the time, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I got, I said to people, I got the job at Reuters because nobody else wanted to do it because credit derivatives in 2001 were considered the most boring thing in the world. Uh, there couldn't possibly be a story in it. Uh, if you're writing about finance, you wanted to write about mergers and acquisitions, you know, exciting deals, you know, technology, exciting things that are happening. You know, credit derivatives, nobody could have imagined that there might be a story in that. Um, and so that was a sort of journey. That was my first job at Reuters. And I indeed moved on from that. I guess that, you know, I, well, I didn't see the, the fullness of the story. I, I write about that in the book that I had. It was an area of uh, finance that sort of puzzled me a bit. And I wrote about some of the risks that I saw in that. But I, I certainly didn't uh, fully predict the, the disaster that would all lead to. And then I went on to write about other things at Reuters. Um, but one of, one of the big things, big areas that I spent you know, several years writing about was the oil industry. And maybe that did have a sort of connection to some of my previous work. I've got to say, I enjoy the, the writing about the oil industry. Like I think a lot of people who work in it and who write about it, it is fascinating. Uh, it covers so many different areas of, of relevance to people's lives. I mean, first of all, just in the basic financial terms, few industries are as big. Uh, you know, at any point in time in the world, you know, most of the biggest things anybody's building in terms of cost are going to be oil projects. You know, there are tens of billions of dollars, many of them. And it obviously touches on the environment, you know, the biggest problems we have in the world. Uh, it's politics, international relations, diplomacy, all these things come into it. So it's, it's a fascinating industry. And it tends to have, I think, you know, often some quite colourful characters in it, uh, particularly because if you think about, at the end of the day, a lot of it still comes down to finding oil and taking big risks to do that. So some of the people who are naturally attuned to that and, and good at that will, uh, will be interesting and colourful characters. So, um, and that was really took me on then to writing my first book, which was about BP, which really came after there. You know, a series of accidents which culminated in the in the Deepwater Horizon. Um, so that in 2010, and that's obviously a book that I'm sure there's a lot of people who were working at BP at the time that were not that happy that you were writing it. So there's a sort of, I mean, I suppose there's a sort of combative nature to journalism generally. But writing a whole book in that sort of way, describe what was what was the sort of the personal experience of that. Like, were you getting angry emails from people were you having to deal with a lot of fallout from it like what was the 
What was the sort? Of, what was the sort of personal aspect to that? Well, I mean, it was surprising. I mean, one of the things with that book was, you know, first of all, the, the, there had been an unmitigated disaster. Nobody could question that the explosion on the oil rig, um, you know, you know, many people dead, a, a vast environmental disaster. And then the question was, you know, what was the cause of that and who was to blame? And naturally, as you probably imagine in many organizations, people want to blame other people. So, so first of all, it's not necessarily a unified position that people would have. And then if you have a change of guard, um, maybe some of the newer people are happy to say, well, that was kind of their fault and we're different now. So in a way, it was quite surprising. So, so, some, so the reaction wasn't actually, as you described, uh, that some people at BP really welcomed the book and were really happy with it, even if they didn't, might have been some people who didn't cooperate. Um, and then other people what, feel that that wasn't, you know, that, that they weren't, you know, they were blamed in, in, in incorrectly. Uh, that's that's the nature of it. Uh, but the, the, the basis of that book was really using my connections. I knew a lot of people. It, the book's called Spills and Spin, the inside story of BP. And and that was what it was meant to be. It was about the inside story of BP. At the time, I had been reading a lot. Uh, I'd been writing a lot myself. But I'd been reading a lot, uh, particularly written by people maybe who weren't that familiar with you know business generally, uh, least, least of all the company, and saying, you know, this disaster happened, the same reason that the previous disasters happened, which was this company is addicted to cost cutting uh, because it just puts, uh, you know, human life secondary to profit. And, um, and they do that, you know, the implicit thing would be because they're bad people. And that just seemed a little bit simplistic um, because it was begged the question, well, yeah, but why would there only be bad people at that company? You know, why why would that be, they be you know have that predilection? Um, so one of the things I, I was setting about doing was trying to talk to people, say, you know, why did you do these things? You know, why did you make that decision? And also to understand the series of decisions that that led to this outcome. So I guess the the real premise to the the book was. To, to look at the DNA and the, the steps that led to a series of accidents that people should have taken cognizance of and changed their ways. And one of them was really came down to a decision around about 1990 to change the structure of, a comp- of the company. And it's, it's one of these things that's quite arcane and, and easily missed. But how you structure yourself in a business actually can have a huge impact on how people behave. I mean, in a way, that's unsurprising to business people because that's why they structure themselves. But you do create a series of incentives, and those incentives can lead to good outcomes, increased productivity. Uh, People can have the right goals and the right rewards to encourage them to achieve those. But also you can lead to some perverse incentives. So, for example, in BP, the decision to, to create individual oil fields or refineries as uh, as strategic business units, or independent profit centers. Uh, and then to overlay that with a series of metrics of measurements, which, which only measured things like, for example, if it was an oil platform, you were measured on output and price. Uh, you know, so you want to get as much production as cheaply as possible. And then that's in a context where people moved around every two years. Well, the problem there is what you, what you do clearly is you don't invest in your facility. All you do is you just ramp up production, keep the costs down. And then the next person who comes along to take over that facility, they've got a problem. And that compounds itself. But that's really a sort of strategic and it's, it's a structural thing. But that over time 
you know, in that particular case, certainly, that, uh, you know, built up. Um, and that was, you know, when you talk to people, the company afterwards changed that structure. It was, a, it was a unique structure in the industry. Indeed, it was a business model that McKinsey had taken to Shell and said, hey, you know, you guys should structure yourself like this. It worked really well for GE, General Electric. Uh, and Shell said, no, I don't think that's going to work for us. In our industry, you know, we need to learn from each other and, you know, different units. Um, so sometimes some of those arcane things could make it, make a very big difference and they're sort of easily missed, I guess, if you don't sort of really get into the weeds of, of the decisions at the company. So that structure, did it also promote more of a culture of sort of competition between the different strategic business units? So they're not, they're not learning lessons from each other and, and collaborating and cooperating in ways that help the company. They're trying to maximize their little silo of results. Is that, is that essentially what was happening? Absolutely. And, you know, that's, that's what Shell said to McKinsey in the late 1970s. And in the 1980s, when McKinsey came back again to try and sell this idea <laughs> to Shell, yeah. they said, no, you know, we're an engineering business. And what happens is a lot of times we have, we have a problem that comes up. It doesn't come up that often. So um, it maybe is a very rare reservoir or set of circumstances. But so that, that, that individual unit's not going to benefit from the, the learning from that experience. But we've got many individual business units, so they need to learn across those. And what I'm referring to what are then lead to things like the, the Deepwater Horizon, it, which is described as a, a low-frequency, high-impact event. And it's difficult to learn about to learn from these if you're not recording near misses, if you're not recording something that's a bit like this in, in one distant place and sharing that knowledge with another one. If everyone operates as an atomized business, then that those, those benefits don't, don't arise. And that very much contributed to the problems at BP. So a lot of what you're talking about there, particularly that whole section around, you know, questioning the narrative that it must be evil people who are working in BP and, you know, reckless people making this happen and stuff. A lot of this is, 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 it feels like a theme that runs through free lunch thinking as well, which is you talking about how certain sort of prevailing theories or the prevailing wind goes in a certain direction and everyone kind of follows it. And I, th- I think, you know, it, it sort of strikes me that everybody can be quite malleable, right? So if, if you hear something often enough, you start to just presume that it must be true. And Really, in the book, you 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 take apart a few of these um, sort of very well worn economic theories, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, we could be predisposed. I mean, one of the the, the books called Free Lunch Thinking because we're often predisposed to, to to things that are free, to free lunches. If someone presents us with a, with an easy answer, that's going to be attractive to us. Uh, also, if if certain things fit with. Uh, seem in some way intuitive to us that can be appealing so one of the things I, I talk about is the way in which we respond to tax rates personal income taxes that do, do, do we does it encourage people to work harder i think all of us intuitively feel that that's the case um, because we feel more motivated that's the idea but just because it feels intuitive doesn't actually mean it's true mm. and one of the things that's interesting in economics is actually the professionals actually are as susceptible to these inherent biases as ordinary people are. People who are meant to cut through all the noise, to ignore political biases or easy answers, that they 
you know, can be as susceptible as anyone else to the prevailing wind at any point in time. So I really smiled when I opened up the book and the first thing I saw was the Laffer curve. (laughs) And I have to tell you my story about the Laffer curve. So I did uh, economics A-level and I was really bad at it, actually. That's another story. But uh, my economics teacher taught us the Laffer curve and I'll I'll get you to explain in a minute for those people who didn't do A-level economics (laughs) and haven't come across it exactly what it is. But I was taught this thing as just fact you know this is just this is just how things are the laffer curve this is this is what you need to know going out into the world and actually the laffer curve is quite a controversial theory that was, was kind of originated in like 1970s kind of free market right wing think tanks and has sort of become adopted by politicians but it really made me actually question like when I found out a few years, um, actually, like it was a, like a few years ago, I found this out that this is just, you know, not fact. <laughs> and like, <laughs> actually, you know, I should have been taught that it was one of many ways to, to, to look at taxation and the economy. Um, but it really made me question just the, the idea of objective truth, <laughs> you know, it's like had quite a sort of profound effect and it feels like you're kind of doing that in this book. So do you want to just explain what the Laffer curve is, and then let's debunk it a little bit. Absolutely. Um, so yes, I mean, I suppose first thing with the book, I mean, this is what I consider as you know, the 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 you know, spills and spin was a expose of BP trying to, to lift the bonnet on on a company. I guess with this book, it's it's trying to lift the bonnet on on economics and and investigate economics and look if it functions as it says it does. And the Laffer curve is is an example of this. Is one of the things that, that I examine. Uh, I got to say, one of the one of the things I enjoyed most about researching the book was was traveling. Uh, to, to the United States to meet Arthur Laffer and to spend a lot of time. I mean, he's, he's a, a phenomenally vibrant person. I mean, he spent a, at least eight hours trying to convince me about the Laffer curve. You you sat with him for eight hours? Yeah, we, we had dinner on a Sunday night <laughs> and we had a long, long dinner over, um, you know, chicken, wine and whiskey. And then the next day we, we sat down for, for several hours more uh, in in his office, and Arthur Laffer is. Did, did you say he's eighty? In the yeah, he, he's eighty. Yeah, so he's like retired and, and no, not no? a chance. No, Arthur Laffer last year got the Presidential Medal of Freedom from uh, Donald Trump. Oh wow! He still cons- consults a lot. Uh, when I was there in the office, he was getting calls in. You know booking private jets here and there to speak. Wow. Okay. So he's still really active and... Yeah, no, yeah. He's, he lives in Nashville, and uh, which he explained to me, uh, and as I write about in the book, was because he it has lower tax rates than where he used to live, which was in California. And he's, yes, he's, he's, he's incredible. You can really see when you meet him, you know, part of the reason why his philosophy has been so successful because he's, he's engaging, he's fun, uh, he, but he's got a vast amount of energy as well. As I said, you know, he was literally eight hours, maybe more. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, wonderful recall of, of figures. Uh, you really just listen and you've got to kind of go away and recompute things. But um, And you describe him as mischievous, I think, in the book. Really. Yeah, he is. He's, he's, got, he's got a mischievous sense of humour. You know, he'll, he'll tell you jokes, he'll, he'll say something, he'll say, really? He's, he's, no, yeah. of course not. You know? <laughs> right. um, so, uh, he's, so like I say, he, he's, he's great fun. Um, but I, I've got to say, the, I, I, you know, after listening to everything and, and, and going away again, I, 
I, I can't say that I was any more, you know, convinced on the, about the Laffer curve. Yeah. And I mean, just in, in terms of the Laffer curve, so I should explain after speaking so much about it now what, what it is. And one of the things that the book I explained is to, to, I think a lot of people maybe who are listening to this podcast, uh, it, it, you people, people may remember the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And that was, I think, possibly my first introduction to the Laffer curve, where you have an economics teacher in a, in a high school who's droning away and boring his, his students to death. And he draws the Laffer curve. And he says, anybody know what that is? Is anyone? Anyone? And it's that sort of famous uh, uh, kind of uh, phrase that, that, that it's remembered for. But it is that thing that was being taught in schools. And the idea was that... Um, you start off. I'm trying to think. If you kind of look behind me, almost like the 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 the, the on the on the the webcam, you can see that there's a, there's a curve of a planet. And uh, so, if you can picture a U, something like a U, and the idea is that as you raise tax rates, um, uh, well, actually, sort of an inverted U really is is the way it's usually drawn. Although the way that Arthur Laffer drew it was like the nose of a of a seven four seven, and that that meant that uh, if you if you picture a line coming out on a graph. And it goes out sort of basically equidistant between the X and Y axis. And what that suggests is that as you raise tax rates, you increase your revenue. So that basically, first of all, if your tax rate is zero, you get no revenue. That's a mathematical definition. It must be true. Uh, no, no, t- zero tax rate, zero percent tax, no tax. You lift it up 10%, you get, get some more revenue, go up to 20%, maybe more revenue. The argument of, of the Laffer curve is at a certain point, there's, a, there's an inflection and the the graph begins to tack backwards all the way up to where taxes are at 100% and at 100% tax rate no one's going to work uh, so so the revenues again will be zero so that's the, the 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 idea to it and as arthur laffer says himself he didn't invent the concept that others had mentioned it in the past but he certainly popularized it his vibrancy and his you know his reference to color etc helped people really see this or you know accept this idea the the issue is where's this inflection point so in a way we could all accept that zero percent there will be no tax at you know 100 percent there'll be no tax revenue as well the question is where is this inflection point now laffer decided round about the early 1970s that the united states was in the top end of this curve it was in the end where tax rates were so high that the actual revenue being raised by these taxes was lower than it would have been if the rates were lower. So if you think about that, at, you, know, you know, before the inflection point, you have tax rates raising a, same, a certain amount, but above the inflection point, the same amount of revenue is being raised, but at a higher tax rate. And this is so, this is so attractive, you know, particularly if you're a mid to high level earner, right? It's like, ah, oh, cool. So I can get a tax reduction and the country will be better off. So it's like, it's a win-win thing. Absolutely. I mean, and just to put it into perspective, so this is not some arcane economic idea. It's not just in, 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 in high school movies, but it is, uh, it became the adopted wisdom of the Republican Party in the United States. And here in the United Kingdom, Boris Johnson and many other people um, have professed great, faith in the Laffer curve. Last year, uh, as recently as last year, Boris Johnson spoke uh, at length about the Laffer curve. So um, this has influenced policy. And the idea is, you know, I'm I'm making these are one of the the interesting things about Arthur Laffer and others who 
you know, follow the, the lava curve, they often don't mention numbers. I'm going to just throw some, make some up but almost. But if you pictured it, the argument would be, if you believe in the Laffer curve, and actually maybe I'll give a specific example because the UK tax authority uh, HM, and HM Treasury have actually looked at this and they've kind of come to the conclusion that the if you had a tax rate at about 50%, a marginal tax rate, not an average, and a marginal one uh, on top earners, that you'd raise probably as much at 50% as you might do at about 42%, Zox or give or take. So and that would mean that maybe at 60%, you know, again, that the, the revenues will be coming downward. Uh, and so maybe at 60 and 40, it would be about the, the same amount. And so obviously, if you're for an individual, you're saying, wow, I could pay 40% tax rather than 60, and the government would be just as well off. Mm. I mean, everybody would like that. I mean, unless you want to punitively tax other people who earn more money than you. But if if, if, if your ambition wasn't, to be punitive, uh, then everybody should be happy with the idea that a lower tax rate raises just as much money for the exchequer. Uh, and as I say, it's become policy in lots of places. It has led to a massive reduction in income tax rates around the world in many countries. The only problem with it is that there is no evidence for it. <laughs> when it's been tried, it hasn't worked out as, as, as planned. And when you also... And this is one of the things I spend a lot of time in the book is when you when you sort of try and break it down into the mechanism of it and look about the chain of events that are meant to allow this wonderful situation to arise where lower tax rates lead to higher revenues. Um, none of the bits in the machine seem to be connected. And, and A doesn't lead to B equals C equals a D. Well, you know, it's just none of those bits are connected. So, um, so that's, that's the issue. And this is one of these things that we've come to believe because we're being offered a free lunch. You can get more for less without any additional effort. And it's almost, so the phrase that's often used with that one is voodoo economics, right? Like it's this kind of magic um, system that uh, sort of, uh, you know, creates this, creates this uh, happiness and wealth out of nothing almost. Absolutely. Which I guess leads me on to the Jensen claim, which is another chapter in the book. Um, so essentially this idea that, you know, when you pay people more, they become more productive, they work harder, and everyone's incentivized by money. Um, and you talk a lot, you tell some great stories in the book. I think everyone's heard the stories about um, Kodak and Kodak's view of, of Netflix and, you know, Blockbuster's view of Netflix and, and these kind of various stories of um, corporations in, enjoying the moment but not looking at the future but the stuff about Kodak in the book where you talk about them forcing many of their managers to own certain levels of stock in the company so that everyone felt as invested as the shareholders and and so on I, I just thought it was really interesting but should we just talk more generally about this idea of the, the Jensen claim and um, why if you pay us all more we'll definitely work harder right that's how it works. That's the idea of, you know, how to get people to, to think like shareholders. Um, I guess all of this goes back to like a lot of things in the book. The 1970s was a, was a period of huge upheaval for the Western world. You had the oil crisis uh, that manifested itself uh, partly in much slower growth. You also had, you know, inflation got out of hand. Uh, these really were the result of some long seated problems, but they really shook people's confidence in both political management and general economic management. And so people were thinking, what's gone wrong here? And one of the things was that you know, people came up with the Laffer curve and 
That was, they thought, well, government's got too big, and government's the problem. But you had also some economists who focused on business, and they're often called managerial economics e- economists. And they thought, well, maybe also there are some problems in companies. And maybe uh, the, the way in which managers behave or incentivized isn't really consistent with economic theory. And what we know must be true, uh, you know, in the laws, according to the laws of economics. And one thing they looked at what was called the agency problem. And it's this issue is to, you know, how managers behave. And the, you know, in simple economic terms, a manager, if you just follow the basic laws of economics, a manager should always follow their own self-interest because every economic agent does that. And the agency problem is where you say, okay, but the the interest of the manager is to get as much money as possible. The interest of the shareholder is to get the best return as possible. And in a way, they're not necessarily aligned. And in the 19, late 1970s, people thought, well, maybe the reason that the economy is doing badly and the stock market had been pretty much dead you know, for, for much of this period, um, one, of the, one of the problems is because maybe managers aren't incentivized to behave in a way that uh, enhances shareholder value. So how do we get them to behave in a way that maximizes shareholder value, which should contribute to the future success of the company, uh, which in turn should help the overall economy and everybody should be better off. So the, you know, the aim was, was a reasonable one. Uh, so what they came up with was to decide that this agency problem was a really big problem. They decided, yeah, it, it, it's, it's got to be. And we have a situation where companies don't really provide the sufficient incentives to managers to enhance value for shareholders. And they said that the reason was because, you know, basically share managers got paid a pretty fat uh, salary and that was largely not variable. Uh, it was based, usually there was a bonus, but, you know, they were going to get a, a fat salary anyway. So they, the idea was, you know, they're not really given the right incentives to perform. So they don't perform. That was the, the, the logic. Uh, and it's quite a harsh logic if you think about it, because what you're deciding is that the chief executives and senior managers are actually quite venal and lazy. Yeah, that's that, that's the implication. And they're saying so if we could change it to a situation to put the shareholders and managers on an equal footing, then everyone would be better off. So the idea was very much equity linked pay, and if you paid managers with more money and more equity linked. Uh, remuneration, they would seek to grow the company. And this theory led to the massive explosion in the adoption of of share-linked pay, first of all in the United States, but then in in the United Kingdom particularly, but then also the places later in Europe, um, through the 1990s. And then that linkage was itself what led to the massive explosion in executive pay. And I show this in the book. You can see the charts. It's it's quite clear. That that chart is crazy, by the way, (laughs) where it's like, here's the FTSE and here's, here's average share price, you know, just going up slowly. I'm trying to trying to uh, yeah, yeah. describe this for um for audio but you know so share, the the value of shares is going up quite yeah. slowly and then in the, in the 90s it just massively spikes the, the this other line which is ceo pay and just the gap between those two things is is absolutely it, it's staggering to see it written down like that yeah and you know the the at the outset everyone said oh this is great the stock market's going up uh so is so is executive pay so it must be working uh 
Mm. Uh, that was the idea. And Kodak is an example of, of, of a company that, that I cite. Kodak was really interesting. And again, it was one of the interesting things of, of, of researching the book was to go up to Rochester in upstate New York, where Kodak was founded. And the, the, the Kodak building, the original one, is still there. It's still an, an imposing site, quite forlorn at the moment. And just it's just an empty... So there's Kodak and then also Xerox has a has a big... They've got a, this is the, this is a, yes, it's really interesting. And, and, and Jensen, of course, Michael Jensen, who was the main proponent of this theory, started out in the University of Rochester. So it's right, a fascinating okay. place. You've yeah. got this, this city in upstate New York and you go there, you've got these two companies. Uh, Kodak was interesting because it didn't actually have um, share-based pay. It didn't have much bonus whatsoever, right up as late as 1980. And um, so in a way, this was, a company you could say, oh, it's the, the biggest deviation from what we consider to be economically logical remuneration policies. Um, and so then it really got into this idea of share-based pay in the 1980s and in the 1990s. And there was some, you know, recovery in the 1990s. We saw uh, after the 1980s were struggling for the company. Um, there was some you know, revival. Uh, but the and and one of the people that they brought in and led through the 1990s was someone who'd come from Motorola, who had been really successful there and done, done great things at Motorola. He came to um, he came to Kodak, and he decided one of the decisions he made was to double down on on print, uh, on film, and the idea was: look, we make huge profits out of this. Uh, we really. You know, we lost our way in the 1980s to diversify into other things, but this is our our main profit center. This is our bread and butter. Let's just crank down into that, which on the face of it, if your job is to increase shareholder value, is probably the correct thing to do, right? That's that's how he's incentivized, isn't it? Well, in a manner of speaking, I mean, as a chief executive, you're 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 incentivized not just to enhance value today, but probably much more so to enhance value in the longer term. You know, chief executives are meant to think about strategy, take the company. They're not the COO, they're the CEO. Um, they are supposed to, to chart the course. And you know, share prices today will reflect the future outlook of a company. I mean, think about oil companies. You know, as soon as the oil price changes and how we feel about the future oil price, the future the price of an oil company will change. So really his job I think looking back, it's an uncontroversial view to, to say that his job really in the 1990s should have been to make good decisions about the future of Kodak, you know, the kind of businesses that it should be in. Now, looking back, um, this is you know the, the, the benefit of, of, of hindsight, uh, but at least that means it's accurate. Um, the, a key problem was that he didn't see how quickly digital would destroy the print camera business, the film business. And this cuts to the issue is that no matter how much you pay somebody, uh, no matter what you link it to, you can link it to the share price, you can link it to what horse wins at the Grand National or link it to the price of gold, whatever you want to link it to. These things don't, it's it's hard to see how they make you a better decision maker. And that's that's the key issue. As I say, the, the man that was put in charge in the 1990s wasn't lazy and he wasn't incompetent. He'd proved his worth at Motorola. He'd made good decisions there. He ended up being paid massively more at Kodak. Nonetheless, that additional money and the fact that it was tied to share prices, um, that, that, that didn't make him a better decision maker. So that was sort of one of the flaws 
in that you know realistically quite simplistic idea that if you pay somebody more, you're going to get a better outcome. Mm. It doesn't really explain why you make somebody a better decision maker and hence the, the flow in the thinking. Yeah. And there's another bit in the book where you talk, you talk about a Jean-Paul Sartre story and like someone asks Jean-Paul Sartre for advice. I can't remember the details, but it was like, um, John Paul Sartre says, I'm not going to give you advice. And then the person says, well, I'll go and ask my priest and my, and, and somebody else. And then it's like, well, the priest is always going to tell you what a priest would say. And so you're basically making the point that if you ask an economist what the answer is or what the, um, the, you know, the, the secret to success is, they're always going to come back with a, an economics based money based answer. But it is way more complicated, isn't it? Like, and you talk about footballers in the book, and yeah. and you know, when you think about footballers, yeah, they're paid a lot of money, and yes, they they have bonuses. But do you think they're motivated by the bonus, or do you think they're motivated by the fact that scoring a goal, which they they would get a bonus for, is gonna it it is gonna you know enhance their career, make them look good. It's gonna impress whoever, you know, whoever their friends and, you know, romantic acquaintances are that are in the crowd <laughs> and whatever else, you know, like there's such, such kudos that we all get from parts of our work when we have success that are not financial, but just really matter to our identity and sense of self, right? Absolutely. I mean, with, with the book, a lot of the, 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 the cases, a lot of the, the things that I look at are, are based on my own reporting experience. And you mentioned there the, the footballing one. And one of the, the reporting projects that I was involved in in recent years was the Football Leagues project, which is basically whereby Der Spiegel in Germany came into the possession of, of, of a lot of information, behind the scenes information about football clubs. And one of the things we were looking at was the tax planning by uh, footballers. And, and that this meant the I, thing that, that leaked out all the information about like Man City and financial fair exactly. play and all that, that those Der Spiegel stories a few years ago. Yeah. So, yeah. So basically Reuters was one, one of the, so there was so much information that Der Spiegel couldn't manage it alone. So they invited uh, news organizations from all around Europe to participate. And we participated uh, from the, the UK slash US. And um, there were other newspapers from Belgium and everywhere else. So we all got together and went through this information. But one of the things that that struck in my mind, I, I remember reading it at the time and thinking, you know, as a, as a financial journalist and someone who'd written about executive pay over the years, that the way in which that, yes, as you said, you know, the, the, the footballers got bonuses if they scored goals. So, you know, you're a striker, your job is to score goals. It's pretty clear. Or to assist you know, the other yeah. strikers to go. Yeah. And, and both of those activities were incentivized. They, they received an incentive. But two things struck me. One was the incentives were incredibly minor. It was typically less than 10% of, of someone's total remuneration. So minor, minor compared to the annual salary, not minor compared to what most, <laughs> most people earn, has to be said. Exactly. Yeah. No, my, minor in relative terms. Yeah. And secondly, they were frequently capped. So what mm. you said is if you scored 30 goals, that's it. You've hit the, hit, hit the maximum. So I think both of those factors show to you that the football clubs certainly don't think that paying a footballer more per goal will get you, will earn you more goals or yeah. more defending. And I think that, that again shows this, this flaw in the theory. And it goes back to another thing. One of the, the things that I quote in the book was John Maynard Keynes giving a eulogy for his former uh, teacher 
Marshall, who's one a similarly famous economist, and he said, you know, the job of the economist is to to understand, you know, all nature of of humanity, you know, all the things that drive people, and then to reflect those in 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 their economic models. But the truth is, very few aspects of human decision making are reflected in economic models. And yeah. you go back there to the SART one, and that's the case: is that you know, you ask an economist, um, you'll get a price based answer. And indeed, you know, many economists uh, have also, you know, and, and eminent ones, both on, you know, people who would be perceived to be a, 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 of the, the right of economics, like, you know, Ronald Coase, who was one of the Chicago school. You know, he lamented the way in which that economics had become essentially a, a price theory. You know, it was all only focused on price and this idea that human beings behave and respond in a mechanistic way to price incentives. You know, you pay someone more, you get better, uh, you get better pay. You increase the price of something, people will buy a commensurate fewer of that product. And the, the problem is it, it ignores so much of, of human nature. It, it, it can't possibly lead to the right answers. We have to talk about one other thing to do with human nature, and I can't uh, finish the interview without mentioning Donald Trump. Um, so Donald Trump called you up and called you a jerk. Yeah, among other things, yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and what was interesting was so many people have had half an hour phone call encounters with Donald Trump and, and this year written a whole book about it. And <laughs> you literally sidestep it in about three sentences. And it's like, what? Like, I really want more. So, uh, so yeah, uh, t- tell me more about how that came about. Sure. So, uh, well, I, I work as a, I said, as a financial journalist. And um, so w- one of the things I've looked at over the years and in recent years has been Donald Trump's finances. And one of the stories I did in 2016, as he was running for uh, the presidency, he was at this point in time, the presumptive nominee, uh, Republican nominee. And uh, so we were looking at Donald Trump's finances. And and many people were looking at the angle, you know, Donald Trump is a very difficult business person. He doesn't pay people. He's he's a nasty person. And I I was thinking, well, maybe there's another story, which is Maybe he's just simply not as good a businessman as he claims to be. I thought that would be, and which would be more relevant given his his whole pitch to the electorate was, you should elect me because I am a great business person. And obviously we had a series of bankruptcies, which argued against that. But then he said, well, I, yeah, but I did really well out of those. So that shows that I'm a good businessman, which, you know, okay. So that's again, being a tough businessman, so defensible. So I was saying, well, maybe he just doesn't make money in the way that he does. So I looked at, the area that he had invested most of his capital over the previous 20 years or so, which was golf. Um, so Donald Trump is known as a, as a real estate developer. But if you really look at those things like Trump Tower, these really go back to the 1970s. You know, after the 1980s uh, and certainly the early 90s at the very latest, you know, he really wasn't that active in, in New York real estate. He, he wasn't doing many big real estate deals. But most of his real estate deals now are licensing deals, right? Where people basically pay money to have the Trump name on a building in different parts of the world because it kind of adds some kudos and curiosity and gets people through the door. Absolutely. And so that's, it's a, it's a, it's a license deal. I don't, I don't denigrate that deal. As he said to 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 himself, that's great. I, I, you know, I don't have to put any money down. I just get the cash. And indeed, you know, we've seen some of the the, the recent reporting from the New York Times, which got his tax, uh, 
returns, that that, that is a lot of money, as he himself had indicated. Um, so it, I, I, that's not to denigrate that, but that's a celebrity business. And that's something that's, that's really predicated off him being out there. But in terms of as what most people would, would consider like a normal business, the business that his celebrity was meant to be based off, it was mainly about going out and buying golf courses and hotels and doing them up and trying to add value that way. And I was looking at this and saying, well, it doesn't seem to me when I looked at it more and more and I dug down literally into every plot that he had bought and sold in North America and, and, and around uh, Europe as well, that, that he had added value. Quite the contrary. It looked to me, based on his own statements, he had spent over $1.1 you know, $1 billion on a golf portfolio that I calculated was after land sales and all that things factored in was worth about half that amount. So wow. You know, it was it was a massive exercise in 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 value destruction. Now naturally before we you know publish a story like that, we go to the individuals a question and say, you know, here are our calculations, here are the facts that we have. Could you please tell us where we're wrong here? And uh, that, uh, so I sent that off a spreadsheet. And then, you know, you know, I mean, it was really not long. It was like about you know, you know, eight hours, 10 hours later, I had Donald Trump screaming down the phone to me, telling me that I was an idiot. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you know, repeatedly, you know, that I didn't understand the real business logic of all of, of, all of this, uh, which was he was saying, actually, that my thinking that these were golf courses was misplaced. They're really development deals. He was planning to build lots of houses on places like Turnberry which again, um, didn't seem likely because contrary to his insistence, he didn't actually have the rights to build houses on, 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 on these properties. Right. But uh, that was, yeah, quite, quite, quite an interesting experience. But uh, one of probably many journalists who've gotten the, the hairdryer, uh, hairdryer treatment from Donald Trump. So this is back in 2016. Yep. And of course, we all knew a lot less about Donald Trump in 2016 than, than we do now. So... I'm just curious, when you got off the phone to him, what did you feel like you'd learn about him and his character and the way he thinks? And Well, the, the what, first thing I learned was that he had a uh, an interesting approach to facts. Uh, that, <laughs> okay. Because, you know, it was, there were so many things that he said that just simply were not true. So one was he said, you know, I have no debt. I have no debt on these courses. Mm. And I think, well, I do actually have in front of me your, your uh, declaration. It's a, it's a, it's a official document where you've actually published and said, look, there's a, there's a hundred million odd uh, debt against Doral in, in Florida. You know, I've got a series of these things. So, um, you know, he, he would play my, you know, he could build houses in his golf course in, uh, on the Potomac in near Washington, DC. And I was like, no, I, I think that's under, I said, yeah, isn't that underwater? Isn't that sort of on the floodplain? It's not like, no, no, I can do that. I, can, I, I got the rights. So, you know, so there were these easily verifiable um, untruths um, that he just kind of, you know, one after the other, uh, which is which is not, not that common. And, and people expect financial, investigative financial journalists to be incredibly cynical and think everyone's a liar, etc. And the simple truth is that actually most people don't lie to you that often. Mm. Um, and the reason is because it's quite dangerous because your credibility can be ruined, yeah. shown to be. And it, it really looks very bad in, in a story if someone has said something and then it's proven to be untrue and then they have to kind of come back on that. It, it, you know, it's, it's an, it doesn't help a situation. I've been in situations where you know, things approach, approach court action and the fact that you can see that someone has contradicted themselves 
you feel a lot, lot more comfortable about your case. Uh, you know, how, how do you Yeah, a lot of people fear shame and embarrassment and losing face, right? They're very sort of prominent emotions in the way people think about stuff. But it feels like Donald Trump doesn't. No, it, 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 was, it was constant. And I think that, that constancy is also interesting because I think that maybe in some way facilitated because... You know, again, you know, with him, I thought was interesting is he, you know, he has a huge energy. And as I say, you know, at a point in time that he had clearly so many demands upon his time, um, you know, that, that he, he, you know, in not getting a lot of sleep, you know, he, he's got the time to, to pick up the call, the phone and scream, you know, for 20, 25 minutes, you know, at somebody about, um, you know, something that's, that, that's made him irate that he doesn't doesn't want to be perceived to be true. So, you know, there is that huge energy, which I think explains a lot of his success, but also with getting away with uh, untruths that could, you know, really damn another person. You know, another thing comes along that needs to be verified. So you've kind of potentially forgotten about that thing that was said 10 minutes ago. Or, you know, you think, oh, yeah, I'll check. I'm not time to check that. Well, I've just got to deal with this next thing. And also then finally, perhaps that so many things that are said that, that are not accurate, that people then start to think, well, maybe accuracy is not this, this important thing. You know, maybe facts are, maybe everything is a, a, a degree of perspective. Um, so I think that it's strangely, he doesn't, hasn't suffered the consequences of saying things uh, that aren't true that, that other people have done for that reason. And I guess also just the nature of his career, he's probably been surrounded by lots of people who will indulge some of those untruths and indulge the fantasies. And, you know, that's the thing that has actually translated quite well through to his political career, like surprisingly so, but it, I mean, it really shouldn't, right? Well, I mean, as, as a journalist, you know, truth and facts are important and it, it's difficult to think in the world how we can solve problems. I mean, Rex uh, Tillerson, who was the Secretary of State for Donald Trump, who I'd come across in my previous job as, as an oil reporter, uh, you know, a, a tough guy, you know, not a, not any kind of uh, lily, li, 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 livered liberal, um, you know, gave a speech after he left office and he, he was one of the people, one of the few people who, who left and didn't talk about, you know, his treatment or complain or anything. But he did say in his speech, you know, we're not going to solve the problems of America uh, by, you know, rose-tinted views of the truth. You know, we really needed to, to, to try and solve problems based on facts. And, and that it is quite worrisome that if you look at things like climate change, or any of the economic problems that we have, and climate change would certainly be an economic problem too. That if we look at those and we just just ignore things we don't want to be true, or we pretend things are true that aren't, like that you can cut tax rates and still have higher revenues, um, you're not really going to solve any of the problems. So that's, I think, the, the, the worrying thing about the past four years in the United States, it does seem to feed into a broader narrative that we're seeing in many places, which is that you're allowed to believe what you want to believe and, and facts are a matter of perspective. Because at the end of the day, uh, they're, they're usually not. And the scientific consensus is not just another opinion. Um, you know, that's something that we can't decide that sometimes we'll accept the scientific consensus. Uh, other th- times we won't, and that we won't differentiate between the two 
other than just on what we like the sound of. Yeah, we've got to celebrate facts. And we've also got to do away with this idea that having one scientist who represents the scientific consensus on climate change on a BBC programme and then having a climate change denier crazy person on for balance is somehow the way, you know, the, the way to represent these things, right? Because And often I think the other thing that happens is that um, a lot of scientists who've been talking recently about, for example, COVID vaccines, because they're so careful to only articulate pure truth, they sound mm. a bit more cagey than the crazy person who has the conspiracy theory who just believe so wholeheartedly <laughs> have uncovered the truth and everyone else needs to wake up. And I think we kind of really need to get back to a celebration of, of truth and facts and, and, and the, the importance of nuance in the way we discuss work and politics and everything else, right? Uh, absolutely. You, know, you mentioned the, the issue about who appears on TV and the studies have been done which have shown that the stock market pundits that frequently appear on TV have got a worse strike rate than, <laughs> than average. And it's that issue of a lack of doubt. A lack of doubt makes somebody great company. You know, if you're in a bar with somebody and you're, and you're discussing an issue of the day, do you really want to have a drink with somebody? Yeah, you know, but on the other hand, um, yeah, it's, just, exactly. it, it's not particularly interesting. Whereas if somebody say, I'll tell you about this, oh, that guy. And it's similarly with TV. And so sometimes the experts that we like to listen to are quite forthright. And even if they're not supporting an idea that we already had, we might find their idea quite attractive. So, the you know, we end up, wow, yeah, guy's talking a lot of sense, you know. Well, no, it's just loud, not sensible. Yeah. It's just uh, <laughs> it's being repeated. Uh, so uh, that, 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 is, that, that is the problem, that how we can sort of look through that and maybe become a little bit less emotional. I mean, one of the things I enjoy you know, working for Reuters is that we have um, a professional audience. And what that means is they, they largely, they, they, they pay for our service because they need it. Um, they're not looking to be entertained. So there could be financial markets, people like traders, um, there could be uh, news organizations who want to take the facts. And some of those news organizations might not be um, without bias, but they can't put their perspective on a, a, on a news story if it's already got a news story. So they want objective news. So we want, you know, we have a, a commercial imperative for hard facts. And uh, you know, it does. So that's our business model. We're not going to get paid if we don't do that. And it's it, it sort of reinforces this idea to me, at least, that you know, it, it shows that these things do exist because we can't sell them if it's not fact. And um, that should that that there you know there is some there is a market for that. But unfortunately, in the the broader discourse, sometimes that 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 sort of is lost, and we see that that the product that people desire is is often something quite different. So I just wanted to finish by focusing on productivity. And, you know, what I love about this podcast is we really get to explore a lot of ideas around how different people define success and, and happiness and, you know, the relationship of the work that we do and productivity to the bigger picture. And I think your book really speaks to that a lot, but just bringing it back to productivity as a theme. So Having investigated economics, do you is there anything in economics that you think can really help us to be more productive, or is the opposite true and we should just ignore it? I'm just interested in how your own productivity uh, may have been impacted by the work that you've done around investigating 
economics? Well, you know, the book largely looks at areas where economics has said that we, you know, we can do certain things and become more productive as a result. We can have faster growth. And what I show in the book is that, that that's not the case in those examples. But I think first, but the idea of looking for things that make us more productive, which and I say, talking back to Ronald Coase, who's you know Nobel win, Prize winner, who 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 complained about the wrong direction, is saying that there is a right direction that we can focus on things, but that that can make life better, can make us work smarter as a society, not not necessarily as individuals, but maybe as individuals, but as a society, we can be more, more productive. But it does mean we need to sort of move away from some of the easier answers, that maybe sometimes more intuitive answers than we've, we've followed in the past. So I think that in some ways by, you know, at least having this exercise of, you know, this area of thought, which is economics, which is meant to be about how we grow the economy, um, that, that, that it can, you know, there, there, is, there is a sort of a grounding there that, that can be built. There are plenty of people there who have interesting ideas. You know, I talk about Paul Romer and how he, his, his uh, ideas about ideas, you know, you know, talking about the growth is really predicated upon ideas. And then if you think about that correctly, um, you can see, wow, what we really need to do is encourage ideas. So um, mm. that, uh, you know, simply incentivizing people through price signals to buy more or less of something or provide more or less of something is not necessarily the best way to be growth, to encourage more ideas, that if ideas are a building block of, of growth. So I think that you have plenty of people, and Ronald Coase himself, you know, he had lots of ideas about transaction costs. So economics can frequently come up with really interesting ideas. Sometimes those ideas are not as prescriptive as some of the existing business models that have driven economic decision-making over recent decades. So there's a, I think one of the problems in economics is sometimes their best ideas are not the ideas that the, that the, 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 the body of study wants to, to propagate. Because if, if you offer somebody a black box that tells you exactly what policies to do, you will be invited to the to the table to, and, mm. and sought for counsel. But if you're somebody that's more like a philosopher, so it doesn't you know what you need to think about is the way in which we include people in society. That can get a bit more wishy washy, and you know you might have like, a couple this coffees. might work, but on the other hand, not in this. You know there are exceptions, and yeah, it's, exactly. Yeah, it's uh, so that might, you might not have the same influence. So that's one of the, one of the one of the difficulties of economics is maybe not to be afraid of of not constantly being person that's you know called on to provide the answers and in terms of how you think about your own productivity um how has some of the ideas from the book helped or hindered do you do you identify yourself as someone who is motivated by money or tax cuts or any of the things that you talk about <laughs> well i, I mean I'm, I'm 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 very motivated on pro- about productivity I and mean, yeah. i do think about that a lot um so uh, in terms of of success, I mean, I work in an, in an industry, I guess, that, that doesn't necessarily, uh, it doesn't really measure it, that success in, in, in financial terms. I say that from uh, having come from finance, mm. which was an industry that did. Yeah. So I can see that being quite different. Um, but in terms of productivity, it's also an industry that's quite difficult to define productivity because you, know, you could say, okay, it's a book or it's some stories, but how you get to that like what are the the bits and pieces that that lead to a good uh, investigative 
story um, or an original book or, you know, so it, that, that is harder to define and, and you know, define you know, the, the, the work that you need to do. So the key is, is to try and define that. And so for me, productivity is very much about trying to break down a somewhat abstract idea or objective into clearly as, as much as possible clearly defined activities um, so making it making it simple breaking it down and then you can do also do those things at your leisure or in the way that you want want to do it but um, it's it's I mean in my job I, I spend a lot of time but I'm doing it for some time working with maybe younger reporters and and helping them you know develop story ideas or advanced projects they're working on. And it is disappointing sometimes to find you have a meeting with somebody uh, and then come back six months later and the project hasn't advanced that much. Uh, they still think this is a fascinating area. There's a great story in this, but we're not any closer to having a story. And that's, you know, through, I mean, a way that's definitionally a lack of, a lack of productivity, but it, I think it's a, a lack of the process. So, if you're in, in something that's, 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 that, uh, that is not as defined as, say, broking or, you know, totting up the, the, the value of a, of, a, of a pension fund, you need to sort of clearly define, you know, tasks as much as possible. Yeah, and that's quite subjective, isn't it? I, I find that with my own work as well is that sometimes, you know, I can get an email from somebody where they're saying something along the lines of, this has changed my life and it's amazing. And I think sometimes that's worth more than me doing a keynote for a hundred people where people are slightly interested in a few things I have to say <laughs> or whatever, you know, so sometimes there is a subjectivity to all of that, isn't there? And, and books often do well or less well based on, you know, catching a zeitgeist and being in the right place at the right time. And, and, and so timing plays a role, right. And, and subjectivity plays a role and it's, um, it can be difficult to, to pin these things down. I definitely relate to that. Absolutely. I mean, luck is, you know, is a big feature in many things. That, yeah. uh, and you mentioned timing, you know, equally good work at a different time wouldn't have the same resonance. You know, I, I wrote a story about a Starbucks tax avoidance in 2012. It was at a time of the depth of the financial crisis. You know, the governments are cash strapped and people are facing higher taxes. I mean, at a point in time like that, people would be more upset about corporations avoiding tax than, you know, at the height of a boom. Um, so a story becomes, gets, 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 gets more play. Um, yeah. I mean, much of it, what we achieve in life, we don't like to think about it that way is, 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 is a function of good fortune, potentially good timing, but even our, our talents, you know, some people are maybe, you know, find it easier to work harder, to concentrate than others. It, it, it you know, that in itself is maybe perhaps you know, luck. Yeah. Well, the book's fascinating and um, I've kept you longer than I said I would. And I, I could talk to you all day. <laughs> I've enjoyed but, um, it. <laughs> let's um, just tell people where they can get hold of the book and where they can connect with you and anything else you want to share. Wonderful. Well, the book is available from uh, you know bookshops. It's also available online. It's uh, available at Amazon, Waterstones. All the your your local bookshop will be connected also to, uh, to online uh, purchase mechanisms. Um, you can Connect with me via my Twitter, social media, um, your Facebook, and also my website, tombergen.net, where you can also find other places that you can get the book and, and learn more about the, the background of the book and also to about myself and my, my other uh, day job as a, as a reporter. Great. And we'll put links to all of that in the show notes at getbeyondbusy.com. But Tom, it's been great. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks, Graham. I've really enjoyed it. 
Just want to say a special thank you to Riz, who um, is part of our team uh, and was the person responsible for all of the compilation of Beyond Busy episode 100. So just want to say thank you to Riz again for all of your hard work on that. Um, Riz ended up working through a weekend and, you know, by the time it got to Monday, she was still going um, to get everything finished in time. So just want to say props to Riz. We gave her a good four-day weekend the week after, but uh, yeah, just um, the dedication and and, uh, time that Riz put into those episodes, I think, really shines through in them. So thank you, Riz. Uh, thanks also to Emily and Mark Stedman, my producer for the show. And thanks also to Think Productive, who are our sponsors for the show. And also want to just thank Penguin for setting up the interview with Tom Bergen as well. Um, if you are finding it difficult to get through this very bleak uh, British winter, I'm recording this on a day where the sky could not look more kind of white and grey and it's really cold and it just feels very miserable at the moment. Um, then every Sunday I send out this thing called Rev Up for the Week. It's a single email that lands in your inbox and it has a single productive or positive idea for the week ahead. So if you want to sign up to that, just go to grahamalcott.com. Uh, my surname is double L and double T, so grahamalcott.com. And then from there you can sign up to Rev Up for the Week and I'll send you my little uh, perky emails once a week on a Sunday at 4.05pm UK time is when it goes out. I don't know why it's 4.05, just is, just a time that I decided one time and now it's kind of become tradition. So 4.05pm, that's when that one goes out. Uh, as always, the show notes and everything else are at getbeyondbusy.com. And if you haven't checked them out, I'd love you to check out the three bonus episodes that we released last week for Beyond Busy 100 with everyone from Lorraine Pascal to uh, Josie Long to Cal Newport, you know, so many interesting uh, people that we uh, profiled as part of that series and uh, you're definitely going to find a surprise and interesting conversation as part of that beyond busy 100 series so go check them out we'll be back as always uh, next week with another uh, in-depth conversation asking the bigger questions about work so until then i hope you're managing to get through the winter i hope you're feeling okay hope you've been kind to yourself i'll see you next week take care bye for now <laughs>